listening to RLC WVPHFM in Piscataway 90.3 The Core. My name is Sarah Morrison. I'm your host of Core of the Matter, our weekly public affairs show airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. only here on 90.3 The Core. You can check us out streaming live at thecore.fm and you can find podcasts of earlier shows as well on that website. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us. Our handle is Core of the Matter and you can shoot us an email at publicaffairsdirector at thecore.fm or explore our Facebook page, Core of the Matter at 90.3 The Core. It has been a disaster of a year for Rutgers University in the public eye, with scandal followed by resignation followed by violence, while being badgered with criticism from all angles. University administration had a tough time battling the press, and the negative connotation the university had as a result was a downer on the student body. Sometimes, we all need a reminder of the incredible people that graduate from Rutgers, a university rich in tradition and high standards for academics. Our own DJs, Kelly Therese and Richard Siegel, had that opportunity. They interviewed Terry Stewart, the president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A proud Scarlet Knight, Stewart graduated in 1969 with dual degrees in education and engineering. He sat down with Rich and Kelly to share his accomplishments, experiences, and even a little about his time on the banks. Why don't you tell the listeners what you majored in, what you studied here? Well, I was, in fact, I was having a little flashback coming up here at the Heights because I spent my freshman year living up here in these metal butler buildings that used to be dorms. <laughs> because uh, if you stayed up here as a freshman, you can have a car. It was the only place on campus you could have a car. You remember, this was an all-male, almost all-white, because there were only 10 African-Americans in my freshman class in 1964. Wow. So the world was very different. I was telling uh, some of the folks downtown, you had to go to chapel at Old Queens on Friday. Uh, you had to be able to swim, and uh, I guess we can say on this R-rated version, if you don't know this, the men that took swimming had to swim in the nude. You always swam in the nude. You could never wear a suit. Oh, wow. So <laughs> things are a little different. Um, but I came here thinking I was going to be an engineer, mm-hmm. which was a really bad idea. All I knew about <laughs> all I knew about engineering is that that's the guy that blew the whistle on the train. It tells you how far how far afield I was. But fortunately, in those days, they had a uh, five-year program that you got two degrees, mm-hmm. and you got a Bachelor of Arts in Education. But you had to average uh, 21 credits a semester to do it. So it's pretty strenuous. But the thing that saved me was the Bachelor of Arts because I hated engineering and I was not any good at it. And so I barely survived that stuff. But I did real well in the, in the Bachelor of Arts program. And um, in fact, uh, part of the, what happened was I knew I had to go on. I worked as an engineer in the summer. I'm from Alabama, L.A., as we say, lower Alabama. <laughs> and um, I worked as an engineer in the paper mills, and I hated it even worse working at it. So I knew I had to do something else. And everybody was getting their MBA at the time, but I figured, eh. A couple of schools, Cornell, Stanford, and Columbia, started a double program with a JD and uh, MBA together in, in four years. And that was sort of like the double program. So I wanted to go to that, but my grades were pretty crappy because uh, my engineering grades were bad. And so I went to Dean Easton, who's the dean of engineering school, and told him I needed a letter of recommendation. The only problem was he'd never seen me before. He didn't know who I was. Aww. So I showed him my engineering grades and showed him how bad they were. And he said, yes. And I said, you don't want me to be an engineer. I need a letter from you because I have really good law boards. <laughs> he wrote me a great letter of recommendation. And I understand he just turned 101. Oh, He's still with wow. us. Yeah. So but anyway, that helped get me into Cornell. I got my MBA and my JD. And I turned the four-year program there into a five-year program because I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And so after 10 years, um, you know, I wound up with four degrees, no idea what I was going to be. Uh, I had hair down to my elbows and straight up in the air. Uh, and I bought, a, I bought a corduroy suit and a bow tie which is not a good combination to interview in. <laughs> Took one interview and became a banker in Hartford, Connecticut, which was the only mistake I made that was worse than majoring in engineering. So that's, <laughs> that's the short version of that. I, don't, I, what I, uh, I was here a few, few months ago for your entrepreneur program. And yeah, I, and um, I, our cameraman, Marlon, actually went to that. With that was a good friends. night. I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. But I, I'm not an entrepreneur, but the main message I had 
for any of you folks listening is that you should chase your dreams and do what you love. And that's something in 1964 you really weren't, people didn't do. Your mom, you struggled because we had no money and I had, had a scholarship here. You, you're supposed to be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, something that will always assure you of having a job. Today you do have to be responsible, but you sh- you're going to chase your dreams. That's what you have to do. So that's the sort of message out of this craziness. Okay. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.3 The Core. Rich and uh, Kelly are interviewing Terry Stewart. And the next question we have for you is, sorry, Kelly. Um, What made him pursue his dreams? Yeah, what made you pursue (laughs) rock and roll as opposed to engineering or banking or any of the other stuff you've mentioned? Well, I mean, I spent a lot of years in jobs I I really didn't like. And the merger and acquisition jobs I did for 10 years, so I was lucky. I went around the world, bought a lot of companies, uh, did a lot of licensing, things of that nature, but I didn't like it. But I lost my job eventually because uh, somebody bought my company. And when they buy your company, there are two groups of employees they, they get rid of. They get rid of lawyers and guys that do mergers and acquisitions because that's how they got there in the first place. So I lost my job. It happened twice. The second time, I had no place to go. I didn't have a home. I didn't have. I left my uh, my practice wife, and um, I was out on the streets. And um, somebody literally uh, in a bar took me in, gave me a place to live. And while I was there looking for a job, I met a headhunter who said, you'd be perfect for Marvel Comics because you read comic books. So... It was by accident. Again, you shouldn't back into, back into your life. You know, you should do straight ahead forward and, and plan it. And, but I knew immediately when I got there that this is, this is what I should do. And, you know, I, did, I was lucky. I did it for about nine years. And then that job uh, went away. And I had to find a new life. And I found out that the president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was available as a job. And so I did everything I could to get that job. I have, you know, 100,000 comic books. I have a half a million records. Um, I've lived inside of pop culture my whole life, but I never had the nerve to, or foresight to chase it as a career. And finally, it sort of it found me versus me finding it. I like that. <laughs> Your career finds you. Yeah. Um, can you give us, like, some history about the hall? Sure. Like, Yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great, great museum. It's, um, in terms of success and, and attendance, it's the most, po- most popular of all the halls of fame. We have about a half a million people a year that come there. What's remarkable is it's in Cleveland. It sits on the shores of Lake Erie. And a lot of people have never been to Cleveland, which is a great town despite all the bad jokes about it. The, mis- <laughs> the mistake on the lake, it's been going on for about 30 years. But um, the people that come to the museum are largely from um, elsewhere. They're, our attendance is made up of 50 states and 100 countries every year. So any day you're on the floor, there's multiple languages being spoken. And we take the art form very seriously. And this is the most impactful art form ever created by man in the sense that if you look at the coming together of the races, civil rights movement, the women's rights movements, the green movements, electing presidents, this is the platform, this is the art form that people can try to be the biggest idealist utopians that ever lived. And most artists do. They have messages and they believe this should be a better world. They try to put it across. So not only do we collect and, and preserve and exhibit the debris or the artifacts and the music itself, uh, we try to educate the world about the importance of this music and the power of this music. And what I mean by that is that we have the most successful award-winning educational program coming out of a fine arts museum in the United States, which includes the Getty, the Met, uh, MoMA, everything else. We have uh, four PhDs, and we teach classes using music. And, and the music, though, is used to teach math, science, social studies, language arts, uh, finance. And we go from first through 12th grade, 
We teach online. We have the number one distance learning website in the United States. It's voted by teachers. We see, teach these same courses online. We have a program for toddlers, uh, three to five inner city kids that are challenged. And we use musical therapists to teach them rhyming, alliteration, and letter recognition. And we test them at the beginning of the year, and we try to improve their cognitive learning abilities. And we do, dramatically. So the point I'm trying to make is that it's a museum. It's a destination. It's someplace everybody should go at least once in their life if they like this music. And otherwise, you know, the power of this music is what we do in education. The other thing I should tell you is that we don't define rock and roll as a skinny white kid with a guitar. That's a very small, small piece. <laughs> this is drum beats out of Africa coming over with slaves. It's, it's sometimes, it was originally called ragtime, then it's jazz, it's blues, it's gospel. It becomes race, it becomes sepia, it becomes rhythm of blues, and it becomes rock and roll. Alan Freed coined the phrase in 1952 in Cleveland, and that's one of the reasons the museum is there. But he was simply renaming Rhythm of Blues. And Rhythm of Blues was a new name for race music in the 40s. And this is black dance music that had been evolving over time. That's why we, we induct hip-hop artists, we induct blues artists. It's a very large tent, which allows us not only to be musically and historically correct, but allows us to examine all those genres uh, within what we do both in the museum and what we do in education. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but <laughs> it, takes, it takes a lot to explain what we do. All right. So now, Kelly and I, we've never been to the, uh, to the Hall of Fame, to the museum, any of that. What's it like? Is it like a hard rock cafe or something like Ooh, that? Ooh, don't ever say those words to me. <laughs> I apologize. You whippersnapper. I, am, I apologize. I'm so naive. No, no. <laughs> No, I, and it's um, actually, I'm glad you did say it, because a lot of people, that's what they assume we are. And I guess maybe to some, the hard rock does have some very important historical pieces, but not all of them. A lot of them are guitars that are signed and put on the wall. Everything we have is historically important in the terms of either the instrument was played on stage, it was very important in writing a song, the costumes were used, the lyric sheets to the original ones. Um, so you're going to see some aspect of that, but we mix um, interactivity films, um, artifacts, permanent, permanent exhibits, temporary exhibits. Um, the film content of the museum is about five hours. There are four theaters. Uh, we've been showing for the last year one of the most incredible concert films you'll ever see, U2 in 3D. Filmed in, <laughs> filmed, so filmed cool. in South America. It really is. No, U2 3D is the name of the film. Um, we have uh, films about the evolution of rock and roll, um, singers and songwriters, but we have Interactives. We have a, we have our first app out, and one of the apps is one of our exhibits, the songs that shaped rock and roll. It's 660 songs that we picked as a committee. That keeps moving because this music never ends. So we had not updated for 10 years. We added about 100 songs over the last 10 years and reaching back into the 20s. This music really begins in the early 18, 1900s with the blues and, and, and jazz. In fact, the first record to have rock and roll in its title is a song, and it sounds innocuous, but is My, My Man Rocks Me with One Steady Roll which tells you what this rock and roll always meant. It was, it was, it was sex. And <laughs> that, out of that one song, the two words which were then conjoined to be, say, rock and roll, that phrase starts being very popular in African-American parlance, and it's used extensively in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. There is no first rock and roll record. There's the first jazz record in 1917, first blues record in 1920, first hip-hop record in 1979, and I'm going to quiz you to find out if you know what the first hip-hop record is in a minute, which you won't. Um, oh but, this, <laughs> but the history of this mu music is so important, and it really traces... The History of the United States. It's the greatest book that's never been written about the history of the United States in terms of race, sex, economics, and everything. So, you know, that's, that's sort of a part of what my spiel, that's my sidewalk out here. Do you, can you tell us a little about what kind of exhibits you have in the museum, and what's your favorite exhibit? Well, as I said, we have permanent exhibits, which we've just, just about finished with a new renovation. And we've tried to, unlike when we opened, we've tried to lay out the exhibits in chronological order. 
so that you'll get a better sense of the rise of this music as it starts, as it comes out of slavery, and it becomes a lot of different things. And so you have these permanent exhibits on the first floor which take you through the history of the music. And there's some genre cases like metal and soul that are down there also and some sections on the 50s. And then there's a whole area of cities where certain musical genres, whether it's early rhythm and blues and rock and roll out of Memphis, Motown, or alternative and grunge music out of the... We capture the artifacts, the music, and we have film clips in each of those exhibits. Uh, we then create four to five new exhibits every year. We just finished a great Bruce Springsteen exhibit. And Bruce showed up on the last day to see it. We had a lot of fun because there were about 25 people still in the exhibit on a Sunday afternoon when he walked up. Two women fainted. One started crying. <laughs> uh, it was a surreal experience, but it was a fabulous exhibit. And we closed it. And when, on next Friday, we opened up Women Who Rock. And, oh, that's uh, awesome. It's the history. That sounds wonderful. It really is. No, it's going to travel, and uh, like a lot of our exhibits. And it's the history of the marginalized voices of women in music and as compared to, much as you would in college, marginalized voice of women in society and business. So you see the rise of women in the music early on. Only when the blues was first recorded in the 20s, for a while they only thought black women, not black men, should record the blues. But then eventually, as you know, women become sort of the um, objects within music as they have within culture in general. But eventually we see that turned around in the 60s and 70s as you see the rise of singer-songwriters and the importance of women as the women's movement also rises up. So we'll be examining all of that. We are, we cut, we've got 60 artists uh, in the exhibit and their artifacts, including who's the biggest artist today in, in pop music. I'm going to go with Lady Gaga. You are so smart. I can't believe it. Must be <laughs> must be the Rutgers education. I tell you. Yeah, Lady Gaga, we have... Um, we have some uh, great pieces. Uh, we have some uh, dresses. We have our first piano. And we have the most amazing artifact that you can probably think of. Let's see how much you know about Gaga. Um, what did she wear that nobody could believe she wore? Uh, was the, the, the bubble the dress? No, the, the meat, meat dress. The meat. You have the meat have dress. Yes, we have the meat <laughs> That's dress. That's awesome. Yeah. She was just in Cleveland. She, her, the last show of the Monster Ball was last week in Cleveland. and we, I saw her on the first one. I saw her on the last one. She's a great artist. She's very, very talented despite all the craziness that swirls around. She's a great piano player, good guitar player. Um, and claims uh, the first time she was in Cleveland, her dad came over to the museum. And she didn't come. She actually had a bus that she uses to write her music on. It's almost like a studio. And she claims that she wrote a number one record about Cleveland while she was on the bus. And she... she talked about it and sang it a little bit the other night it hasn't been released yet because the new album isn't out yet but so we're covering the whole history of of, of women in, in music so um also can you mention some of the uh other women that are in this exhibit sure um hart um joan jett uh cindy lopper um aretha it's it's really a, a panoply of artists it's not all inductees because most of the museum, most of the buildings, about all the artists, not about the inductees. But we've got a fair number of inductees. Uh, Mavis Staples from the Staples Singers, Wanda Jackson, the rockabilly filly. If you know, she's mm -hmm. still performing. She's uh, in her mid seventies, tours the world. Great, great singer. She's in there. So it's it's a little bit. It's everything from you know straight ahead white rock, urban music, hip hop, uh, blues. Um, country, all that's in there because it's women who rock, and rock is a generic term that we use today. Obviously, you rock it, rocks, Rutgers rocks, however you want to do it. So, you know, we really try to cover the whole whole waterfront. Thank you for listening to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show here on RLC, WVPHFM in Piscataway, 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, Sarah Morrison, here every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m., bringing you a fantastic program about what's going on in your backyard. 
We're continuing now with Kelly Therese and Richard Siegel's interview with Terry Stewart, the president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a Rutgers University grad, class of 1969. I'm Rich from Specifically Irregular. And I'm Kelly from Totally Wired. And we're here with Terry Stewart, who runs the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland. So can you tell us about some other exhibits besides the women in rock? Sure. We, besides one large permanent uh, temporary exhibit, we always have two or three other ones. And almost always we have a photography event, photography exhibit. And uh, right now we have one that's uh, women on film. Uh, there are two ladies in Cleveland who have been uh, photographing rock concerts for 40 years, and so we've got one of them, uh, her exhibit up, and that'll be up for about six months. Then we're going to do an exhibit on the Specialty label. Specialty was one of the first labels started in 1946 in Hollywood, really recording race music, which is then later on called Rhythm and Blues, as I mentioned. And we'll do the history of that. We often do small exhibits to allow us to capture um, anniversary dates or something of that nature, and they usually stay up for a year or two, and sometimes they travel. My father, I know, sent you an email a while ago <laughs> complaining oh, about... Boy, is, he a Russia, is he a Rush fan, Moody Blues, Chicago? <laughs> Which one is it, Kiss? Um, he's actually a Hollow Notes fan. <laughs> oh, okay. That one, too. Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. Um, so, I was... People, there have been a lot of... There's been a lot of criticism for the induction process because people haven't gotten their um, favorite band inducted. Uh, can you tell us about the induction process, how it works? Sure. And I think one of the words you used is their favorite band. I... Um, <laughs> I, I'll explain the process, and as I tell folks that I get these emails, probably about 10,000 a year, complaining about this. And sometimes in my, and I have to be, I, I try to answer all of them. Some of them are really ugly and difficult to answer. Uh, but often, I'll, oftentimes I'll put a PS that says, so, <laughs> uh, our job is to be very objective and and nominate and induct the bands we think have had an impact and influence or have been innovative and excellence in music. And I'd like you to send me an email back and name the five bands that you hate that have to be inducted. And in 10 years, nobody's ever responded to that because huh. the, virtually no one writes me about a band they don't like. And I hardly ever get to nominate a band that I'm really crazy about, but I'm looking at, at uh, artists that I think should be inducted. Basically, there are four categories of inductees, performers, early influence, non-performers, and musical excellence. And musical excellence covers things like um, sidemen and um, things of that nature. Um, so in the performing category, there are 40 of us that nominate. And that, that, that committee is made up of folks like Little Steven from... Bruce's band, uh, Paul Schaefer from The Letterman Show, mm -hmm. people in industry, journalists, writers, critics, professors, um, a very broad, diverse group of men, women, and different races, trying to make sure we've got ages and everything covered because it's just the nature of what, what you, what, how you think about the music. So your only hard criteria is you had to have a recording 25 years ago. Now, that's becoming an issue right now, and I used to kid about this, the fact that the way bands work today and they work at home and they upload stuff would be hard. There's no tangible evidence of that first recording. It used to be a record, then a cassette, then a CD, and now. So we're going to start a registry shortly on Facebook um, where bands will send us their first recording. We'll archive it in our library and archives, and then we'll start the clock tolling. So there's actually some point where you know if you're eligible. But we go into this committee, and we nominate three artists each, and we talk about what they've done musically. We don't talk about how many records they sold, how many number one hits they had. In fact, you're not allowed to talk about that. You have to talk about why the band or the artist is important musically, what they've done innovatively uh, or um, impactfully. And we have a sort of iterative voting process. We spend most of the day together, and out of the room will come about 15 candidates that is then sent to a voting committee of 600. 
In the voting committee, the largest block of voters are 400 living inductees. And then there's another 200 people like myself, um, again, writers, journalists, critics, people in the industry. So it's a very diverse group. But you get right down to it. It's the living inductees who are the biggest difference maker when it comes to voting. So when I get all these complaints, I usually say, well, write Bruce, write Ozzy, write Prince, write Bonnie Raitt. You know, these are the people that are actually selecting it. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I had been nominating KISS for about uh, five years. And I finally got them on the ballot. And that same year, ABBA got on the ballot, which people have a hard time understanding how ABBA is rock and roll. Um, but if, if you really want to think about it musically, ABBA comes out of the Beatle Elvis Presley songbook, not the Gershwin Irving Berlin songbook, but it's translated through Swedish. Mm-hmm. So we look at that, and we look at the impact of, the, of that group. I mean, when you get behind uh, the Beatles and Michael Jackson and Elvis, probably somewhere in there, ABBA's as important musically around the world as anybody. I mean, they just are. They've, they've been, you can see the, many, of the, many of the British bands um, from the 80s and 90s will tell you they were, they were very much influenced by ABBA, which sounds, sounds very outside of the box for it. So Kiss doesn't get in. ABBA gets in. I 10,000 emails, you know, dear moron, dear idiot, <laughs> and this sort of thing. So uh, it is a very methodical discipline, discipline process. Hall & Oates, your dad mentioned, okay, the biggest selling duet of all time. Uh, great, <laughs> great songwriters. Um, you know, unlike some groups that sold lots of records and very popular, they, they wrote their own music. Uh, very creative, and at the same time, they've just never gotten any traction in the nominating committee. I wish they would. I'm a huge Hall & Oates fan. I would love to see them get nominated. I'd love to see them get inducted. Uh, but then I have about 30 bands and artists I like like that myself, and I just mm-hmm. never get around to nominating them. I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that they will get inducted at some point. I'm laughing uh, with Rich and Marlon because they're actually my favorite band, with, along with my dad. So I can see you've been brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, but the other three, the other three categories—the early influences and the non-performers and musical excellence—are all done by committees. And again, hopefully, every year we 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 the early influence is really an homage to many of the black artists, particularly that came before the Big Bang period period of rock and roll, which is Elvis and Bill Haley in the fifties. It's not where it starts. It's, as I said, there is no first rock and roll record. People like to argue about it. And my license plate is Rockard 88, which is a song from 1951 by Turner and Jackie Brinston, which a lot of people think is the first rock and roll. It is not. But, it, <laughs> but it's still a great license plate. So, you know. um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.3 The Core with Rich from Specifically Irregular. And Kelly from Totally Wired. And uh, I know you mentioned this in the other segment, but in case someone's just tuning in now, some artists aren't necessarily what people would call rock and roll. Like, I know uh, you said ABBA, not everyone would consider rock and roll. I believe Madonna's been inducted, mm-hmm. run DMC. So could you explain, in case someone's just listening now, why they are considered rock and roll to you? Well, because this all comes out of the same uh, syncopations and beats that came out of Africa. And this music, the irregularity of it um, is what allows artists to be very, very creative. You know, classical music and European music uh, had a very set um, sort of formula to it. With the rise of uh, black music, you do almost anything you want to. And we see this as a river of music that continues to evolve. I I grew up in the 50s, okay? So a lot of the artists that I think of rock and roll artists now, I have to defend that they weren't. Connie Francis, who was one of the most popular female singers in the 50s and 60s, everybody calls her a pop artist. But I lived the time, and she was called a rock and roll artist. You can can be very recidivist about this and, and, and revisionary and look back and say, well, that's not rock and roll. But there's no way you can define it. You can't put any set of elements on a, on a piece of paper and say, this defines rock and roll. I mean, it's been defined by a lot of artists like it's music of the youth, it's a music of attitude. Um, you can't 
put down certain instruments or certain subject matter and say that's rock and roll. So we we, bro- we broadly define it that way, and most musicologists do the same thing. And that's that that's what's important to us that people understand that we we. It, it is not one set of uh, ingredients that come out to make this. So we, we're always going to be controversial. Madonna was controversial. Uh, Miles Davis was inducted, not as an early influence, which he could have been, or some other categories inducted. And he kept getting nominated by and voted on by, you know, the, the living inductees. So we, we know it's subjective. We recognize it's subjective. And that's the way it's always going to be. It's not going to be like baseball and, uh, and all the sports Hall of Fames where they have statistics. And you either played baseball or you didn't play baseball. This is a this is a, a, a an art form that's very malleable and one that continues to challenge us. And you know, I promise you, fifteen years from now, if you have kids and you're listening to whatever they're listening to, you're going, boy, I don't get that stuff. Your ears, your ears <laughs> stop growing; they sort of stop. And it's it's a big challenge for all of us to do what we do to keep listening and say, you know, uh, this new music is rock and roll, or that music was rock and roll. Has um, your favorite artist been inducted? A lot of them. I mean, I, you know, as I said, I've got a half a million records, so um, I listen to everything. I listen to, I try to listen to everything as much new stuff as I can. I listen to a lot of hip hop. Um, and so, you know, we, we've only inducted two hip hop artists, Grandmaster Flash and Run DMC. LL Cool J's been on the ballot twice now and just hasn't gotten the votes. But we're coming into a period which I think is very important in hip hop because shortly Public Enemy and NWA, which are two very, very formative uh, artist groups, that will be eligible in the next couple of years. It's going to be interesting to see if they get inducted in. In the 90s, when you get into, uh, eventually get into Kanye and you get into Diddy and all these artists that were so important in that area, it's going to be interesting to see if they get inducted. I think we'll have a lot more hip-hop at that time. But I keep hoping some of the groups from the 50s will be remembered and inducted. And, and even, you know, people like Hall Notes, you know, very important, you know. All right, so other than those artists you just mentioned, do you see any, uh, any other promising artists that you think could have the uh, potential of being inducted in the next 10, so, 10 or so years? The thing that's interesting with this 25-year rule, um, the way music has changed and the way the industry has changed because labels aren't as important as they once were. Mm-hmm. You know? And music being on the Internet and the way radio is now, it's, it's, so, it's so homogenized because you had two large syndicates roll up the stations and everything's formatted you got radio doctors that you know one time all the music was played on one station you would hear hip-hop right next to straight ahead rock and roll or, or folk rock or country rock and that's not the case anymore and you see artists now being hard-pressed to have we think long careers like you know the stones or the beatles i don't know if we'll ever see those kinds of groups again partly because of the nature of the business i hope we do but when you look at who's out there um there's a group that's been around a lot longer than most people think. In fact, this will be their 21st or 22nd year um, that will be eligible in a couple of years, and that's Green Day. Wow. They've been around since 90, I believe. Um, you've, got, um, you've got Nirvana coming up eventually, which I think, you know, even though the group didn't last long, incredibly important in their influence. Um, and then um, oh, um, Dave Matthews, yeah, who yes. if it continues, again, you know, jam bands are so important, Fish. You know, yeah. will will these bands be inducted? Very possibly. Uh, their influence is extraordinary. I mean, the whole idea of uh, when Genesis was inducted a couple of years ago, and um, one of our my friends who used to work at the museum and now is a writer at, at Rolling Stone, Andy Green, was interviewing the guys at Genesis. And um, Fish was the group that played for Genesis. Genesis, Phil Collins doesn't play anymore. He's got he's, his hands because of, he doesn't play. Yeah. And uh, Peter Gabriel was on tour. So they didn't have the whole band there, so they didn't want to play. So Fish agreed to do a tribute and played three three Genesis songs. So uh, the writer Andy asked them about Fish. Well, they thought 
that Fish was a guy who had a nickname, Fish, who was in a band in the U.K. They had never heard of the band Fish. And then Andy went on to explain they were a jam band and explain what that meant. And the guys in Genesis said, well, wait a minute, they, they don't have songs, they don't have music? So, you know, we used to play long songs, but we had music. And he was explaining how these bands just keep playing. So even, to, even as recently as that, this whole concept of jam bands has become so important. And I, I think there'll be a, a huge number of those bands inducted. So, yeah, they're, they're out there. I don't think there's as many as we once had, and, and we've inducted so many of the, of the giants, that what's happening now with the induction process is we're reaching back and inducting some of the groups we passed over, maybe like a Hall and Oates, you know, somebody like that, that sort of thing. Rush, I get it, so much mail about Rush. Yeah, I love Rush, that. Chicago, Kiss, Moody Blues. Uh, those are the those are the artists I get the most most of my email about that are not inducted. So I'm I'm hoping we get there. Um, can you tell us about your favorite induction moment of the past decade or so? Because I know you go to all of these events, right? Yeah, I have a favorite, um, <laughs> and it was the good news is we finally released. Um, a compilation of all the inductions the first 25 years and the reason oh, wow. and that's really difficult because you have to go get the rights for all the images and all the music mm-hmm. and and that's really hard but we we put out a lot of it and one moment that people kept taking off of youtube and tr- asking us to to send them was when um george harrison was inducted it happened to be the same time that prince was inducted and for george they played when my guitar gently weeps and prince mm-hmm. played the solo and uh, if you get a chance, I suspect it's on YouTube, go see that number with Prince, where he comes out uh, in his brilliant red suit, m- matching red shirt, um, and, he, and I, think, I think he may have had a red guitar, I'm not sure, but he, he plays in, an incredible solo, and then he leans at the edge of the stage and pretends to fall off the stage. He's caught by a bodyguard, and they push him back on stage while he's still playing, and then when he finishes... He takes his guitar off and throws it in the audience. Of course, his bodyguard caught it. But, you know, <laughs> not, only, not only the flashiness of it, but also just the simple fact that the, the mus- musicality was so great. So that's, that's one of my favorites. Um, Bono uh, came off the stage when U2 was inducted, grabbed a bottle of champagne off the table, popped the cork, and sprayed the audience. That was pretty cool. <laughs> and then this year, when Neil Diamond was inducted, he came down in the audience and sang Sweet Caroline. And stuck a mic in Bruce Springsteen's face and asked him to sing one chorus, which he did. Oh, so wow. there's, there's no kind of... The, and the speeches, the, the speeches, it, it, again, in the, in the videos, to see the speeches when, like, Tom Waits was inducted this year. And Tom said, one of the lines he had was, he said, you know, um, they say, um, I've not had any hits, and I'm really hard to work with. And I say, well, what's wrong with that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you get some great, uh, great moments when, in the speeches and in the music. Here with our very special guest, Terry Stewart, interviewing him. You mentioned your collection earlier. Can you tell us what kind of artists you have in your collection and what else do you collect? I got my first record in 19, oh, 1948, and it was, uh, it was uh, a country record. And I collect everything but polka records, and that gets me in a lot of trouble. It <laughs> gets me in a lot of trouble in Cleveland because the polka hall of fame is also in Cleveland, and a lot of great <laughs> polka artists came out of Cleveland. In fact, in the 50s, in the, a lot of recording studios in Cleveland, a lot of the rock and roll songs recorded in Cleveland had polka bands doubling over because it wasn't enough work to do both, you know, do one thing, so they had to do both. But um, I collect um, rhythm and blues, straight-ahead rock, hip-hop. I collect soundtracks, original cast, dance records, 12-inch dance music, which is one of my favorite, Christmas records, comedy records. I have 30 78s, 45s, and do you kids know what the fourth speed was? There are four speeds of records. I'd like to use a lifeline. I'll use my <laughs> Ask a Terry Stewart lifeline, please. That'd be, 
That's a good. That's a <laughs> good pick. It's sixteen. Uh, sixteen uh, uh, RPMs were used largely for spoken words, and they were used for transcripts on radios. Because if you had these giant transcriptions, mm-hmm. you'd put them on a big table, and late at night, particularly, you could let them run and run and run. You didn't have to have people like yourself sitting at the mic. So I collect almost uh, everything. I, I on Tuesdays when we have a, we have a store in the museum, and on Tuesday when the new new material comes out, I try to read all the reviews and you know see what's coming out, see if I like it, and I try you know I. You know, I try to find a new drug all the time. That's what music is to me. It's just like going going to live shows, seeing who you can perform. You know, it's like the other night, my wife and I, we had a, a black tie event we had to go to, but I was dying to see KT Tunstall, and I'd never seen her. And I didn't know it was, an, it was an, a one-woman show. She was by herself. And she's on stage with uh, sync tracks, and she had about eight different guitars, and she just tore the place up. It was one of those moments when you, if you ever go into a club and you and you you sort of go, this could this should, this should be okay. And you go in, and you go, holy, um, <laughs> um, I mean, just just blew me away. I mean, I went back and told her she toured the museum that day, and she talked about it on stage, and she was she was so excited, the thing excited, she they let her hold one of Muddy Waters' guitars, and so she was very excited about that. You know, and like uh, I tell everybody, they're probably the, one of the greatest live acts in America right now is a guy named Trombone Shorty. If you haven't seen Trombone Shorty from New Orleans, you know. He's uh, he's a quadruple threat. He's the greatest trombone player coming out of New Orleans, the greatest trumpet player coming out of New Orleans. He's a great singer. He writes his own songs, and he dances like James Brown. So you have this incredible combination in his shows. So, yeah, you know, um, right now, you know, I'm I'm listening to... Neon Trees. Uh, I like One Republic. I like the script. Uh, what's that um, band from Jersey? The, the guy from Jersey. It sounds like Bruce um, Anthem. Um, oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. So I mean, I'm I'm constantly looking for something new. Uh, the new Adele album is a fabulous album. That is Chris, a great yeah, album. She's got she's got an extraordinary voice. Mm-hmm. She really does. Yeah. Uh, we actually play a bunch of those indie artists you mentioned on our station. So well, you have good taste too, then. Yeah. Well, we're well, an independent music independent station. music station. You know, mostly indie, alternative rock, but there's a lot of different music we've got uh hip-hop shows we've got a jazz show so that's just a little bit about our station but uh back to the questions about you (laughs) so do you have any other hobbies or interests outside of rock and roll maybe something a fun fact about you oh well I am a inveterate collector, so um, I have over the years collected jukeboxes, neon clocks, uh, vintage motor scooters. Um, I once dated a girl because she was an extra in Quadrophenia. If you, if you ever seen the film, <laughs> the mods and the rockers, the, you know the whole period in Britain when you had kids mm-hmm. on motor scooters chasing guys on motorcycles and that sort of thing. Um, Coca Cola stuff, um, clothes. I, I just you know stuff fills my life, and, and my my wife is. Very, very disconsolate about the whole problem. She just w- she wishes I would minimalize my life, and I'm, I'm <laughs> as I'm getting old here, I'm trying to do that. But it's a really hard thing to get rid of all this stuff. You know, the records will always be there, and, um, and I think uh, to some extent, uh, so will the neon clocks and the jukeboxes. Rich here loves musicals. Yeah, I do. I'm a big fan of musicals. Oh, cool. Also, rock operas. So, like, how do you feel about shows like Quadrophini you mentioned, Tommy, uh, American Idiot? How do you feel about those? Well, I unfortunately haven't seen American Idiot. I would like to see it. Um, I loved Tommy when it came out. It was very important in my life. Um, I love The Who. And, you know, musicals, uh, what's interesting right now, there are two rock, there's three rock musicals on Broadway right now, if you call Rock of Ages, uh, Million Dollar Quartet, and Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen Million Dollar Quartet in Memphis. I haven't seen Rock of Ages. And, 
but just straight ahead, uh, Broadway material. We, we're very fortunate in Cleveland, so if people are thinking about coming to Cleveland to visit the museum, you should know that the second largest performing arts center in America, which are 10 theaters downtown Cleveland, are running all the time with plays and shows and concerts. So we're very lucky, and if I don't get to New York to see uh, one of the big plays, I'm very likely to see it very quickly. I meant, you know, um, I loved uh, Spring Awakening, which is a great, oh, yeah. great play. That, yeah. Great play, and, um, you know, and I, I think it's important that that art form it does you know you've got duncan Sheik who's just wrote this the play it opened this week with suzanne vega suzanne vega plays um carson mccullers uh the writer and her and duncan Sheik wrote the music so what's great is you're now seeing um some of this crossover where you're starting to see some real rock sort of plays i mean you i don't really think of rent as being a rock uh, a rock music but everybody thought it was a rock play you know hair yeah. that sort of thing so yeah, no, all those shows that you mentioned are really good ones. <laughs> By the way, I've seen or know the soundtrack to most of them, so uh, you got a good taste in music. Who knew? <laughs> anyway, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.3 The Core with Rich. And Kelly. That would be her. And we're interviewing Terry Stewart. <laughs> 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 what makes you love rock and roll so much? Well, I think cause it, it changed my life. I mean, if you were my age and I'm 65 and if you're growing up and suddenly this stuff shows up and I love music so much I was listening to country music and pop music at the time and suddenly I became aware of rhythm blues and then of course Bill Haley and Elvis and it was music being made by people almost my age for people my age and that's why as I said some people define rock and roll as people made by youth for the youth and unfortunately, as you grow older, that's why you have to keep adapting sort of mm-hmm. listening to it but it, you know, it, it gave me something that was musically music was so important but it gave me something that was my own it gave me something i could dance to it excited me i mean i often when i lecture on the history of rock and roll i'll play um songs that were being played in the early 50s when alan freed coined the phrase rock and roll were what we call double entendre songs there were things like it ain't the meat it's the motion keep on churning till the butter comes or my favorite one of my favorite records my baby just loves my big 10 inch record of the blues <laughs> and and these are all race records that were rhythm blues records that were then phrased and coined to be rock and roll records but if you were listening to the other side of the dial you were hearing things like how much is that doggy in the window by patty page so mm-hmm. if you're a teenager or a young kid and you're hearing these songs and one is boring as all get out like how much is that doggy and then you hear this forbidden sort of stuff that you your imagination is running wild with what what it's all about and things you're not supposed to and you can dance to it i mean it just it just overwhelmed me now today you sort of take that for granted and that's the challenge today you'll you'll hear certain people say rock is dead mm-hmm. now it's just it keeps there are more there are more bands out there now making better music than ever but there's no clearinghouse through the label so it's it seems like with the demise of the industry per se that a lot of this stuff is going away but again if you don't also get very very limited and define rock in some special sort of little box that it is if you realize it's hip-hop it's metal it's 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 trance it's dance music it's all this stuff you know it's there's this it goes everywhere it's anything you want it's out there so and it still amazes me and it still just floats my boat like when i go in to see somebody like kt tunstall mm-hmm. and i see that a trombone shorty and i haven't seen him and i say wow where have i been or i learn about a band that's been around for maybe four or five years and i didn't know didn't know who they were you know that sort of thing so it's it's very exciting, and um, I hope that never changes. I hope I hope I have that kind of feeling the rest of my life. Being that you're an expert on all of this sorts of music, I wonder um, who do you think is the most influential guitarist of all time? Well, I don't think there is one most influential, but you know there are, there are a lot of them, and I I see your partner getting ready to sneak in there on the other mic. But um, <laughs> yeah. you know, you look at the people that have been inducted, and um, Les Paul. 
Les, you know, obviously, not only was one of the great guitarists, he, he invented the solid body guitar concept and he invented overdubbing. And he was the one guitarist that every rock guy with a guitar went to. Um, Jeff Beck worshipped him, worshiped him, and Jeff now has a DVD out where he does a tribute to Les. And I was lucky enough to be at that show that night, and you, you need to see it because he plays both the Les Paul uh, songbook, plus he plays a lot of rockabilly stuff that you'll never get to hear him play. But I, I think you can, you know, there, if you look at the pantheon of people, he inducted in the ones we haven't done. If you look at Dwayne Eddy, who's uh, never had a record that had a vocal on it in, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, incredibly important. Um, obviously, you look at, at Clapton who's been so influential. B.B. King, Buddy Guy, these are all uh, incredibly important artists. My, my favorite guitarist is a guy who hasn't been inducted, but he was Stevie Ray Vaughan's uh, second biggest influence. And Stevie Ray is my favorite guitarist of the last, <laughs> last 30 years. Far and away. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but our cameraman Marlon loves Stevie Ray Vaughan. He's, I, is he your favorite? Favorite, so you just made him very happy. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you a hip to the tip here because I'm gonna tell you. Besides Albert King, uh, the great blues guitarist, the other guitarist that influenced Stevie Ray is a guy named Lonnie Mack. And Lonnie Mack's recorded in Cincinnati, and he's um, he recorded both uh, a lot of R&B, did a lot of James Brown records, but he had an album that came out in '63 called "The Wham of That Memphis Man." He had two hits, instrumental singles, but he sang. He's one of the first great blue-eyed soul white singers doing this stuff, and he. He and Stevie, and they don't sound alike, but they do sound alike. And Lonnie's mainly known for his guitar playing, but you need to check out Lonnie Mack. Another great guitarist that people have never heard of is Travis Wamick. Travis Wamick won a contest when he was 12 years old and got a record deal from Scotty Moore, who owned the label. Scotty Moore is, D- is Elvis's guitarist. Mm-hmm. And obviously, obviously, Scotty's very influential. He's the guy that most of the Brits, that's the first rock and roll guitarist they heard. When they heard Mystery Train or some of those early Elvis records, you heard Scotty picking there. So, you know, I, I, I can't pin it down. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, who's incredibly influential right now from Rage uh, from the Machine? Um, was it Morello? Yeah, yeah. And Bruce uses him on some shows sometimes as a guest guitarist. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it, it's hard to be influential and new, but there are guys out there making strides and doing stuff and, and continuing to be better. All right. So this one's going to be a bit of a tough question, but if you could choose your top five bands. Or, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> the look on my face told you the answer. No, yeah. no, the reason I don't is, um, uh, I mean, obviously there could be some political reasons, but that's not really it. It's the mm-hmm. fact that when you look at how broad my interests are, whether it's vocal harmony, which most people call doo-wop, whether you call it rockabilly, whether you call it soul, whether you call it straight-ahead rock, I mean, I can't, the one thing I'll answer once in a while is I'll talk about the Desert Island uh, line is what albums would you take to a desert island? And I often talk about the Lonnie Mack album, which I still love, uh, um, the Beatles' White Album, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, yeah. you know. So I mean, there's probably a half a dozen albums that I sort of always revert to. Do you have a, a, a favorite, do you have a Desert Island album? Have you ever thought of that? Uh, I haven't really thought of an album per se. Well, I guess I would choose Abbey Road because I love that. Maybe Revolver. It's by the Beatles. For those listening who don't <laughs> know that, well, you can learn anything on this show. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> and uh, oh, I think I would take Who's Next. Oh, and okay. I haven't really given much thought. What about you, Kelly? I don't, this is this is difficult, but I'd say my personal favorite album is uh, Led Zeppelin's second album, Led Zeppelin Two. It's my favorite. Not, not Hollow Notes' greatest hits. Well, right? okay. <laughs> I, let me. Let me. I love Hollow Notes, but I also Led Zeppelin. I think is. I think I just love Hollow Notes because of my father. But Led Zeppelin, I would say, is my most favorite band. Yeah. Well, one of the rules on this um, desert island is you can't take a greatest hits album. So that's that's yeah, that's, that's, that's not it's not allowed. I know. Well, what about H two O? That was a good album. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I think it's time for a break. 
Welcome back to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show on RLC WBPHFM in Piscataway, 90.3 The Core. My name is Sarah Morrison. I'm your host, and we're getting back to our interview with Terry Stewart, done by our own Kelly Therese and Richard Siegel, about his time on the banks and his time as president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Terry Stewart mentioned before that he, he's actually an alumni of Rutgers. So how do you feel about being inducted? <laughs> Well, like I said, I, it, it befuddles me, um, and I mean that sincerely, that for somebody who's been so lucky to do what I've done over the last 20-something years with comic books and rock and roll, it, I'm, I'm, I'm honored in the sense that they are elevating popular culture, which is what, I'm, what I do, and the impact of popular culture, alongside some of the other folks who are being inducted or have been inducted. I met one of my great idols um, who's been inducted, who was... Um, Rutgers' first All-American, Paul Robeson, who uh, you know, who was uh, African-American, who became a movie star, a great singer, eventually blacklisted through the whole uh, McCarthy era and that sort of thing. To, to think that um, I'm part of a piece of paper or a scroll or an archive somewhere that has both names is just, it's un, I'm unworthy, but it's still it's so incredibly um, ex- exciting for me. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's just, I'm looking forward tonight. I hope to have some fun. Uh, the great news is that um, I, the greatest, the other great experience I had here was being in a fraternity, which is kind of strange to say, <laughs> because it was something I hated before I got to Rutgers. I came out of the South where fraternities were very elitist, and, and I wound up with a bunch of lunatics, <laughs> and we were on probation every semester I was here for something, uh, and if this wasn't a family show, I would go through the litany of things that we did, but... Uh, the great news is out of that uh, that house, which at one time had 150 brothers in it, um, that 10 of those guys have been my best friends for 40 years, and we do everything together oh, all year. Nice. And it's whether it's weddings, bar mitzvahs, uh, christenings, um, unfortunately now getting our age, we've had a funeral, but um, th- there are 26 people there with me tonight doing this, which is extraordinary that they wanted to come. I, yeah, that's very you know, I mean, we, there's a lot of jokes in there, and they've made most of them the last two days because we've been down at the shore um, having a few adult beverages and trying to remember this, to remember the, <laughs> so we could tell the same stories we've been telling for 40 years. So, you know, the, the fraternity experience here was extraordinary, and it's one that, that changed my life. Uh, besides the academic uh, aspect of being here, I, I was going to go to West Point because um, I didn't have any money and I needed needed a scholarship. And at the last minute, I got the scholarship to Rutgers and I didn't go to West Point. And the great thing about Rutgers is, um, among other things, being close to New York. And, and mm-hmm. whether it was my art courses or, or some of my history courses, things I had to do in the city in order to be able to pass the exam. Because much of the art courses, if you didn't go to the, didn't go to the museums, you wouldn't know what the question was all yeah. about. So yeah. that, that aspect of being in a metropolitan area and the mix of people at Rutgers... Um, I met everybody from um, Ezra Pound's grandson, who was in my fraternity, oh. to about four mafia families who were in my fraternity, <laughs> too. And that's just the nature of Jersey, the nature of the metropolitan area. And so Rutgers was one of those life-changing experiences. And um, I'm thrilled and honored to be back, and I'm, it's, it's a joy to be on your show. So I hope somebody out there hears something here that's uh, kind of interesting. And uh, as I said, again, if you're lucky enough to hear any of this and you believe it, chase your dreams. Because uh, certainly I'm living mine, and I'm living mine again tonight here. Uh, do you have a favorite class that you can remember, or a least favorite class, professors, anything like that? Oh God, you know, um, favorite classes. Uh, believe it or not, of all um, my French French classes, which I love French, 
And at the time, I got very good at it, surprisingly enough, even though it was, was with a southern accent. Uh, <laughs> and I loved, um, I had a German lit course that I loved. It wasn't in German, uh, but the, the prof was terrific. I don't remember the names. And I'm one of the few guys, I used to love economics, money, and banking. And so I would, those courses meant a lot to me. The engineering courses were just hell on wheels to me. It was, it was just, it was torture night, you know, between double E courses and, well, computers. Oh, yeah, imagine <laughs> it's 1964, 65. We got one mainframe here. You know, the thing is as, as big as the, the student center. And you're running cards, and you're you're doing Fortran one or two, and then after you learned, it takes you that four inches high to add two and two equals four, and that'd be the kind of programs you'd run. <laughs> then you had to learn machine language, is all digital oh, stuff, which I hated. So I mean, I can't tell you that um, I liked any of my engineering courses. I had some great professors who were who were fun and, and, and enjoyable, but the subject matter just was just stultifying to me. So they're all my liberal arts courses. I loved accounting. You know, it's it's all that stuff. Uh, I had a speech class. I loved. Oh. I took speech. Oh, cool. In fact, cool. that was that was probably the most embarrassing moment at Rutgers. Um, I needed an A because of all the bad grades I had in engineering, and I had an A going in. You had to. The last thing you had to do was there were four speeches you had to give, and the last one was this long speech. And I'd given one about rock and roll. I'd given one about uh, why there's no Easter Bunny. I'd come up with the. <laughs> I, I'd come up with these ideas. If you gave interesting topics, maybe it'd be easier. Again, do what you love. Yeah. So for some unknown reason, I decided the last speech was going to be on um, original sin, which I knew nothing about. <laughs> so I started. I did my research and had this half-hour speech. And of course, when you don't know anything about it, and you lose your way, you are done. You are fried. You are finished. And I just. Dead stop, paralyzed, didn't know where I was. And the prof, and I, he knew I needed to say, because I told him I didn't. And he said, all right, go out in the hall, collect yourself, and I'll give you another shot at this. So I go out, and it was in Scott Hall. I guess it's still down there. It's still and, there. <laughs> and, 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 and it was, it was, classes were about to change, so I went in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And I got in a stall, and I was studying my note cards and everything, trying to get this back. The bell rings, and they change classes there with a bell. I don't know if that happens anymore either. Probably not. No. And all of a sudden, all the people coming into the bathroom, I'm in the stall. But what really was terrifying, the mistake I made, is I went in the ladies' room by mistake. Oh, no. And, I'm, and it's 20 minutes between classes, and I'm stuck in the ladies' room for 20 <laughs> minutes. So as bad a shape as I was in when I went in there, now I am terrified. And I, <laughs> I am this, So I, I went back in and told the professor what happened. He says, you know, that's the funniest damn thing I ever heard, and he gave me an A anyway. So that was, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So you're listening to 90.3 The Core right now. I'm Rich from Specifically Irregular. And I'm Kelly of Totally Wired. And we're here interviewing Terry Stewart, who runs the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum up in Cleveland. And right now we're just asking him a bunch of questions about Rutgers. He's a Rutgers alum, you know. Um, you, you, do you have, like, a specific professor you think you could remember other than your speech one? or No. No? Mm, that's what was, you know, I had to do this... Uh, I had to do this video for tonight and this induction thing mm-hmm. and uh, because there were no professors I was ever really close to because most of them were engineering professors. The other thing else was one-offs. And, um, and so to do the video, I said, who the heck am I going to get? So um, I did hire one band over and over. I was, I was president and social chairman of the fraternity. Okay. So I hired this one band a lot. And the name of the band was Link Cromwell and the Zoo. And Link made 145 record while he was while he was here at Rutgers, but um, in 1970, he went over to St. Mark's um, Church in New York. I think it was a church, and 
this woman was reading poetry that night for the first time, and he listened to her, and he was taken by her. So he asked her if he didn't think maybe they should put some music to it. Well, her name is Patti Smith, and uh, his name is Lenny Kay, and he's been Patti Smith's guitarist ever since, and he's in the video, and God knows what he'll say. And also, um, one of my good friends is a great, legendary radio personality, uh, Cousin Brucey out of New York, and so he's going to be on there. So I, don't, I, I, I couldn't even come up with... So this is going to be something, everybody's going to have like, you know, research people and business people. <laughs> and here I've got a guitar player and a disc jockey of mine. So, no, I, I had great, uh, the folks that taught me those courses were really good. You know, you know who taught here was, um, um, but no, I, you know, there, were, there was no, no professors that I was such a bad student in most of the stuff I was supposed to do. There's no reason for me to ever be close to them. So, mm-hmm. all right. So now. The food at Rutgers is very interesting. (laughs) So I can see that you've had a good experience with it also. So everyone's question, I'm sure they would ask if they had the opportunity, is what was your favorite dining hall? Well, you've got to remember that we all ate and you had to eat at the dining hall down on uh, College Ave. That's where you ate. There weren't, no. No, well... If you th- and I don't know what it, it must it must not be a lot better now and that's unfortunate. <laughs> I, do freshmen still have to eat there and that sort of thing? Uh, eating plans? Do you have that stuff? Is that still? Yeah, yours? we still have dining plans. I wonder was it called Brower back then? Brower no, no? Okay. but what happened about three quarters of the way through my freshman year was life changing because um, one of the few dishes that I'd never had growing up that I actually liked was uh, eggplant parmesan. <coughs> And, I, and it was actually, and I actually served it, and I liked it. And I had it one night. And I, again, I was living up here at the Heights in these these metal buildings. And about four o'clock, I woke up so sick, so Aww. sick. So I go into the bathroom, and apparently, it had taken longer for me to get sick because everybody else who had been sick had already been there. If you see where I'm going with this. <laughs> and what had happened is they had gotten something into the food that day, so. Some, some huge percentage of the freshman class got sick. I mean, a huge percentage. And it was just, this was the type of food poisoning. It just, you know, you wanted to die, but you'd have to get better first. You know, that's how, that's how sick we were. Yeah, that was, that was, after that, when I joined the fraternity, I lived in a fraternity house for four years. So uh, we had a house mother, and she cooked for us, and we had good meals. 